Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. Today I want to do something different. I have Scott Johnson, who is one of our staff at the church I work at, the the church I pastor, uh, The Crossing. He has been with me since the beginning. He's one of our co-directors of worship. And when we first started this church 21 years ago, he uh, was one of our, he was our worship leader. And he was one of our four staff, full-time staff, before we even had a worship service. And so he and I have been working together for 21 years. And one of the things that we've done together is is create a worship service. I do the preaching. He does the, the, the directing of the music. And in the sense of he plans the music, he sings the music, he plays the instruments uh, along with a team of people. He sets the tone. And uh, we've had a journey together for 21 years. And I've always, for a while, been wanting to have him come in and talk about worship. And I was kind of waiting for a psalm that would be related to singing and music and instruments and the power of singing in worship. You've noticed that we've had that in this stretch of psalms that we've been looking at when we've been in the psalms. Psalm 96, Psalm 97. And now we're going to look at Psalm 98 today. And we're just going to have a conversation about some things that he and I over the years have talked about with each other. So some of the things we're going to say we've talked about before, but you know how conversations go. They just sort of go where they go. And uh, I think that this is going to be an opportunity for us to do something a little different. It's not going to be a meditation prayer podcast today. It's going to be talking about a psalm and giving some insights on it. We'll have a a moment of prayer at the end. But anyway, I want to introduce to you Scott Johnson. Scott is, uh, again, in the room here with me. He is not used to podcasting, but he is used to having conversations with me, and we're going to try to keep it conversational. Scott, why don't you just say hi? Hey, good to be here. (laughs) Good to have you here. And when you think about your job as a worship director, let me just ask you this first. To you, when you think of worship and leading people in worship, what is that? What are you trying to get them to do? That's a good question. Uh, one of the things that uh, immediately comes to mind is that um, one of the commands God gives us in Scripture is to sing together. Uh, we see that in the Psalm, Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song. And there's so many different references to singing, particularly in the Psalms. It's a, it's a command that God gives his people to do together uh, for his glory and, and as a way that we encourage one another in our faith. Uh, and so a lot of times when I'm thinking about a worship service, uh, my main goal is to choose songs that uh, we are able to sing together uh, as one. I think it's really a good point. So you're thinking that that, that that singing is a command. It's not just something we do that's helpful, therapeutic, something that gives us a chance to do something that is expressing ourselves. It's it, you, you just said it was interesting. It's actually a command of God 
Yeah, it, it's absolutely. I mean, we. I'll just give you a quick run through of a few psalms. Psalm thirty-two, eleven says, "Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Sing all you who are upright in heart." Psalm thirty-three, three says, "Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy." Psalm forty-seven, six says, "Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises." And I've heard you say a lot that anytime there's repetition. In scripture, it's a way that we underline something for emphasis. So we see sing praises four times in a row. One of my favorites is uh, Psalm 147.1. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. Now that word fitting um, means that it, it fits us. It's something that we spiritually need to do. That's interesting. Something to how we're made. And we need to do it. I mean, look at these verses. I'm just, as you went through them, I kind of started turning to them. Uh, Psalm 33 is one of those psalms that really hits it. Like you said, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. That's like a harp kind of thing, right? Some sort of musical instrument. Uh, Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. That's kind of like the guitar Jimmy Page used in Stairway to Heaven, that double barrel guitar. and uh, But those were ten string guitars at the end of the day. Right? Is there six strings out of ten, or five? Twelve. Yeah, twelve. You're right. Yeah. Shows what I know. <laughs> Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a lot of the themes we're going to look at here in Psalm 98. But it's interesting because it's the power of instrumentation. It's the power of music. It's the power of singing. There's something like you just said right there that it's fitting. It fits us. It fits how God made us. God sings over us in some way, however poetic that is. God sings over us in some way as part of his delighting in us. And in some sense, that's a synonym of praise. He's, He's not worshiping us, but he is delighting in us. He's praising us as a parent praises a child. And we think of that kind of praise when Jesus talks about when he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a kind of praise that brings joy to our life. And so God delights in us by singing over us. So in some sense, we could say that we're delighting in God. We're teaching our hearts to delight in God. We're doing something in our hearts when we use our mouths to sing to God. And it's something about being created in his image that we do it. And there's always this phrase like we have in Psalm 98, verse 1, O sing to the Lord, sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. This idea of a new song, we see that over and over in the Bible. Sing to the Lord a new song. There's something about this this newness of songs that is a way for us to be fresh in our delighting in the Lord and to be fresh in our worship. We, we, we sing a lot of old songs and old songs are awesome. And yes. they're, they're, they do, I, mean, I mean, awesome in the real sense. I don't mean it in the dude sense, but I mean, awesome in the sense that they do bring awe. They're, they're worded in such a way that has rich poetry. There is something about old songs that have stood the test of time, that if we're singing a song that's a couple hundred years old, it's probably still around for a reason. It, it resonates with our experience. It resonates with truths about God. But then there are lots of new songs. And people sometimes think that new songs are getting away from 
the richness of the Christian tradition. But there was always a time when those songs 200 years ago were new songs as well. So what, what's your thought about new songs and churches singing contemporary new songs versus old songs and hymns and things like that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, kind of the, my starting point is um, that in some sense you want a, a, a mixture of both tradition, church history, and also uh, something that's new. I mean, in, in thinking about new songs, the very starting point for that for me is just remembering that God is a creator. He is a creative God. He created the entire earth. He created the universe. He created the seas. He created you and me. And um, so there's something in our mandate as Christians to be creating. And one of the things that we create is um, songs for us to sing to remember who our God is and what he's done for us. It's weird. So in some sense, we're, we're being God-like when we create new songs, and then we're being God-like when we sing the songs that we create. There's something in that that, I don't know, it's just cool to me, that we're being image of God-ish in our worship when we create new songs and work those new songs into poetry and work those new songs into melodies that are pleasing to us. And that in that, we're delighting in God. And somehow it's a full circular kind of way that we're being God-like as we sing because singing is God-like. And as we sing, we're focusing on who God is and worshiping God. And God actually in the Trinity worships one another. And so that's God-like. And there's something we could almost say we're being most God-like when we're creating songs and singing songs in worship. Yeah, I think it's a a way that we embrace Embody our faith. It's a, we embody um, who we are as image bearers. Not only when we sing, when the, the the words and the melody spill out of our mouths, but when we actually sit down, we write new songs, or we uh, craft prayers, or or even liturgies that we use in in corporate worship. Really, any sense of creation is a, is an embodiment of that image bearing quality in us. What do you look for when you evaluate whether a new song is a good song for a congregation to sing? Well, some of the things that I look for, um, usually the starting place are lyrics. And the question that's really important to ask when you're looking at a song is, is what we're singing true? Does this give us um, an accurate picture of, as I said earlier, who God is and how we can relate to him as his children? in the name of Jesus. Do you think there's something about singing that hits the brain in ways that just talking and listening doesn't? In other words, when you say, is what we're singing true, does it kind of get into a door that um, we have to be careful of as worship leaders because singing kind of gets into a door in our brain, a gate that is not as well kept as maybe that gate that we keep when we hear something said? You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a good question. In some sense, um, I think that's why we look for uh, words that, that are, are true, that are founded in Scripture, because we can easily be fooled by a compelling melody. You know, uh, I mean, I remember growing up and, and loving a song without thinking about what the lyrics were actually saying. And then as I look back on that song today, 
I'm I'm surprised uh, by the content of the lyrics without me even thinking about what I was singing. But and and the truth of the matter is that the lyrics are shaping us as much as the melody. So we want to be paying attention to what we sing because uh, the, those lyrics get in our heart through the melody. Yeah, love the one you're with. I'm thinking of Crosby, right. Stills, Nash, and Young. You know, you, or maybe just Crosby, Stills, Nash back then. But these songs that have a great melody, love the one you're with, and it's a liturgy that you repeat because of the melody and because of the catchiness of the melody. And I think it goes into a gate in our brain we don't evaluate, and then pretty soon I find myself singing love the one you're with, which is totally contrary to anything I believe, but it, it, it gets in that gate, gets in that door. Yeah, it will fool you that way. It does. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. You know, uh, so, you know, we kind of, any anytime we're choosing a song, we're, we're, we're going through those lyrics and thinking, not only is it true, but is maybe a way that uh, the writer is expressing this truth, is it clear? as well. Sometimes you can have a really great lyric, um, but it might not necessarily be understandable to someone who's outside of the faith as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we want to be cognizant of as well as we're thinking through these songs. We want them to be accessible for anyone who kind of comes in through our door. Yeah, and I know I can say that you really do believe this. I can think of over the years you and I have had discussions uh, <laughs> where I've liked a melody of a song and you're like, yeah, but I'm not sure that that lyric is great. And I go, well, just, it's a great melody, you know, and, and you and I have always had a little bit of a sticking point. And I, you know, I these kinds of things where who's right, who's wrong, we've always found a balance to this word. Mm. Uh, but I've always appreciated your carefulness because of your love for the congregation. Mm. It's not that, you know, because I think most people, if your job was worship leading, you just want a good song and you want to see people having a great time and wasn't, wasn't that great. But you've never, I, 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 at least over the years, I think you've been careful not to be seduced by that because you've always had this love for the congregation and the stewardship of shepherding what they're singing. And, the, and, and I, this is a phrase I've heard you say, the words that you're putting in their mouths is important and it's a stewardship and it's a shepherding that you take very seriously. And I've always appreciated that about you. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, as much as we're paying attention to those lyrics and yeah, we are, you know, we're curating um, I think the um, sung prayers uh, of our church. Um, we also want to make sure too that the music is compelling. That's interesting. So, so the idea is not just good lyrics, but you you're looking for compelling music. What what is compelling music to you? What are you looking for? Oh, that that you know that feels so, such it's like a subjective uh, it is subjective uh, uh, question. Um, one, in some sense, the is it singable? Is it is a song memorable? You know, is it something that I can listen to? And um, to be honest, I don't have the best tonal memory. You know, I know people who can listen to a song once and they can just immediately sing it. Um, But it's not necessarily a gift of mine. But if I listen to a worship song and there's something about the the melody or the way the the melody is paired with the words that kind of stays with me, that leads me back to it. I, I think um, that's kind of a clue to me that uh, this could be something that'd be helpful uh, sung by the congregation. Sometimes it's an instantaneous thing. I remember listening to We Will Feast in the House of Zion by Sandra McCracken. And, and I remember hearing it for the first time, just thinking, this is a remarkable song. There's something compelling about um, 
the way Sandra McCracken as a songwriter has written this lyric, written this melody in a way that it's singable, it's memorable. You're com- there's something that feels natural about singing it out loud. It doesn't feel like a melody that's written for a professional singer who can do lots of runs and all this. It actually sounds like it's written to the, for the congregation, um, but it's still a good melody. And it has kind of an epic feel to it. Like you're, 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 it has that feel of you're singing about a drama. Yeah, and not only singing about a drama, I'm singing about, I think this would resonate with you, Dave, is I'm singing about uh, my narrative within the structure of the larger drama. Yeah, how, putting, it, how it fits into that. She was going through a divorce, and so these songs on that album are really trying to put her story that has confusion, pain, grief, all kinds of emotions everywhere on the map into God's bigger story. And this idea of feasting in the house of Zion. Remember we talked about Zion in the past as this sort of metaphorical image in the Old Testament of the capital of God's kingdom, for more better way to say it, I don't know how to say it. It's this, it's this place where God's rule is central, and we will feast in the house, the family of God's kingdom, is a longing she was singing with a melody that was kind of epic, this is a drama that's taking place, and she's putting the drama of her story that's very hard to interpret and very confusing and has a lot of questions and a lot of worry and anxiety into that bigger drama, and her singing that song as part of doing that, which gets us to what is happening in the Psalms. And this is a point I really want us to make, is that when we read these Psalms, these poetic lyrics are crafted to be true and to and to use the poetry to build an image in our heart and our mind as we worship and we're developing vocabulary. So in Psalm 98, it goes on to say, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered, and of course that's poetic because God doesn't actually literally forget. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. So this idea of the house of Israel, this bigger belonging. So we will feast in the house of Zion. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness in the house of Israel. Of course, the New Testament teaches that believers in Christ are become part of Israel. The church is, is Christ's body. It's the true Israel. It's the new humanity in the kingdom of God. Israel has always been this olive tree that we've been grafted into. And so we are part of this house of Israel, the house of Zion that, that Sandra McCracken sings about is, is really kind of coming from this song, the house of Israel, the house of Zion, God's steadfast love and faithfulness, and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. I just think it's a great example, even in this psalm, of the power of lyrics to create a kind of view of God and to put our story into the larger story. Yeah, Tim Keller has a great quote on that that I thought I'd share about when we sing words. He says this, he says, when you sing words that have been crafted maybe centuries ago, 
that are so eloquent about what Jesus has done. And then when you stand and sing it together, surrounded by other people who are skillfully leading you in singing, as you sing it, you are enjoying God in such a way that you could never have enjoyed otherwise. You are delighting in God in such a way you could have never have delighted in otherwise. And therefore, you are being filled with the Spirit in a way you could have never been filled otherwise. You are being changed on the spot. That's really good. That's really good. And I've seen that in my life, you know, the 40-plus years I've been a Christian. I've seen the power of those moments in my life. I have them one-on-one with God, and I also have them as part of a congregation. Um, it's it's unusual for me uh, before my sermon to really— uh, be animated in worship, and I—I'm just—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll be honest. I'm one of these guys that feels funny being animated in worship in front of people. So I tend to be the guy that drives you nuts, Scott. I stand there with my arms folded, uh, like I'm not into it. But I'm thinking about it deeply, and there's been times when I've really been moved by the worship because there's something about the melody combined with the power of the words and the belief of the one who's singing it. And it comes together to do something to me that I think that quote nails it. It changes me on the spot. It, it does something into me right then and there. Yeah. I, I, I like that idea that um, our singing is not just a ritual that we're going through the motions. It's something that we do when we go to church because when we go to church, we're, we're singing. No, that the, just as Tim Keller says, that our singing is changing us. And it's not just something that's changing us because we're doing it alone. It's something that we're, we're doing with one another. I think part of, for me, part of the, the way God uses um, our singing uh, on Sunday mornings is, is not just the fact that I'm singing a song, but it's when I'm hearing uh, the congregation, you know, however many people are are in the auditorium singing it robustly together. Um, yeah, that's really true. You know, that really is amazing. I, I I haven't thought of it that way, but there's something about the listening to people singing something that they're they're really into and believing and expressing with their emotions that has this effect. It's almost like there's this sense where we've talked about lifting up our eyes and seeing vertically. And that's how we interpret the horizontal. But there's also a sense, I think, in what you're saying, and I think it's true, that the horizontal reality of people's faith together is lifting my eyes vertically. Yeah, I've heard it said that the most, in that way, the most important instrument in the worship service is, is the church, the voice of the people, because that's the body of Christ. That's a really great way to put it. So in Psalm 98, verse 4, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. This is really interesting because it's going through this list of instruments, you know, the lyre, the, the horn, the trumpet. There are other psalms that have other instruments. Do you think there are uh, biblical instruments, or is it the kind of thing where whatever instrument your culture has, that's an instrument you can use in praise to God? Is there is there something about the variety of instruments that is important in our worship collectively as a church? You know, I know there's been a lot of discussion around what instruments are appropriate. And, um, you know, Based on my study, based on my experience, is that I, I think that um, 
Scripture allows for a great diversity of instrumentation um, within within corporate worship. I mean, I think you can go to what is it? Is it Psalm one forty five or Psalm one fifty? Psalm one fifty. I'll just read it real quick. So I was just while you were talking, I was kind of thinking about that. It says Psalm one fifty verse three: Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute. I said like a flute kind of thing, and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. <laughs> Some people don't like that. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And it's this idea of the drums, the cymbals, the the tambourine, the lute, the harp, uh, the lyre. All these, is, I think the psalmist is trying to say, whatever you got, pick it up and play it. Play it skillfully in praise to God. We have that same kind of thing back when we were reading in Psalm 33, verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. We read that before. That next verse, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So this idea of playing all these instruments skillfully is a value to God. It's a value in something that has to do with quality of worship. And so I think that's what you're getting at when it comes to these instruments aren't prescribed in the Bible, except just to play them as part of worship and to play them skillfully. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think even more than just the question of what instruments are we to use, um, you kind of... um, talked about that God is asking us to play skillfully. And in some sense, I think that's um, bringing our best uh, to to um, the instruments using our best resources, uh, whatever whatever resources that we have within, you know, the local church, which, you know, there's varying uh, degrees of, of skill as you go from church to church. But I think that play skillfully is a, is a wonderful command just to, to do the best you can with what you have given. And then also, uh, even beyond playing skillfully, I think um, what God is asking us is to bring a heart of worship to Him through those instruments. I've always been interested in instruments in the Bible in the sense that, you know, we read that David played the harp and what kind of brings him unto the scene in First Samuel is he is playing the harp for King Saul. Saul is being tormented by evil spirits. And somehow David's playing the harp drove the evil spirit away. So there's something about the power of him. And it said he was playing skillfully. There's something about his skillful playing of the harp that did something in the spiritual world, did something in his spiritual life that either maybe made him strong spiritually and didn't make him such an easy, fertile target for an evil spirit, or it was something that in and of itself was irritating enough to the evil spirit where it it drove him away for a while. But I've always found it interesting that the power of music to do something spiritually. And I I think about that story in 2 Kings 3.15 where Jehoshaphat brings Elijah, and, and Elijah says, bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And so there's an interesting thing there where it, the, the Elijah couldn't prophesy, or at least he was going to do better at prophesying if a musician was brought. And as the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. 
I just find that super interesting. It doesn't really explain all the whys, but it does explain the what, and that is the power of skillfully played music to do something spiritually in us. So when I when I see worship at the crossing or other churches, and there's a really good moment there where things are happening musically, instruments are being skillfully played. That's you know some people say, well, that's just a concert, that's a show. There is the seduction to that, but I don't think that's being fair to the scriptures. There is something happening there that is legitimate worship when musical instruments are being played skillfully, even if it's an instrumental. I've just read a couple verses there where the power of instrumentals in our lives spiritually are something that's very biblical. Do you have any thoughts on that? Pitch it to me one more time. Yeah. There's been times in in our church where... uh, you know, there's a guitar solo or a cello solo or a violin solo or even sometimes a really great moment with the drums or a great moment with uh, the bass and the drums and the guitar. And some might think, well, now we're just trying to be a rock concert. But there's a reason for that. And the what what would be your reasoning for having that kind of focus on the instrumentation at that point? Well, before I go into the the full answer to that question one of the things i think it's it's worth emphasizing is anytime those moments come up uh, in our service those are those are really carefully chosen um in in a lot of ways i i personally try to minimize uh the amount of times we have instrumentals just because i think it can can become a hurdle for the non-musician uh in terms of knowing how to engage in this moment when I'm not being necessarily asked to do something active myself in that moment. Um, so, but when we do choose to have those instrumental passages, uh, it's a way of one, it's almost like a Selah moment in the Psalm. Selah, tell me what you mean by Selah. Well, it's a moment where if you look at the Psalms, every now and then the psalmist will be writing, um, pouring out his heart to God. And then you'll see uh, a word that says Selah. And it's a moment to pause and to consider and to kind of, in some ways, meditate prayerfully. Bible scholars don't really know what that word Selah means. Their guess is that it means rest in a musical interlude. Right. And so when you come to that moment in the psalm, one of the things I think we're invited to do is just to sit, pause, reflect on what we've just read. And, and the maybe, musical interlude can be part of that. Yeah. And so when we do that in our worship service, uh, in the past, actually, we've actually had the word Selah sometimes come up on the screen when we've had an instrument, instrumental. But when that instrumental comes up, it is a way for us to um, not just um, enjoy good music, though that certainly is part of it, um, but we're resting in what we've just sung, and we're resting in God's presence, who's with his people as, as they worship. And what enables us to do that, I think, is when we have a skillful musician like Raphael, or a skillful musician Raphael like... Raphael is somebody on our worship team right now at the crossing. He plays the electric guitar, and, yeah. he, and he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful player. Or any number of our musicians, really, on the, on the stage, when they, they have a moment to stretch out and express themselves and use their skills and play skillfully which uh, on their instrument, um, 
it's a way that I think we can step into those moments and let them lead us in worship in a, in a different way than we would have had otherwise just by us singing along with one of the vocalists, of the, one of the worship leaders on the stage. Their skill um, taps into a transcendency mm. uh, if we're able to pay attention and, and engage our heart into it and step into it in that way that I think we can lift our heart to God in a unique way than just us singing uh, singing the lyrics. And if we take what we've just sung in those moments and lift it to God through the musician that's playing, I think that can be a powerful time in worship for us. I think that's a really great way to say it. The transcendency that we experience, the transcendency that is brought to worship through skillfully played, rightly selected instrumentation of all kinds. It can be drums, it can be bass, it can be guitar, all these ways that we have modern harps and lyres and lutes with all kinds of synthesizers can be kind of a lute. And so I just think it's important for us to realize there's really no spiritual, there's no style of music that is prescribed in the Bible as more or less spiritual. There's no instrumentation that's prescribed in the Bible as more or less spiritual. The important thing, thing I, the important thing I think is what you're saying, and that is, does it bring a sense of beauty and transcendence that makes that does something to us? It draws us into the bigger story. It lifts our eyes to God in some way. And when it's, when it's done skillfully, when it's done purposefully, and the word I've, I've heard you use is intentionally, that we've been intentional about what's happening that does something to us in worship that just merely singing or merely words can't do. Yeah, I think that's right, Dave. And But as you were speaking, I was, I was also thinking about my responsibility as a worshiper uh, in those moments. As, um, a, as a worshiper. As a worshiper, not just as a worship leader. But if I'm in the congregation, right, mm -hmm. and— um, you know, I'm I'm part of the church, singing praises, worshiping God, praying together, and all those things. I'm always aware of the choice that I have at any given moment to engage or disengage. And what I mean by that is that I can enter into a space of worship and and, and be passive. And yes, I might be singing the songs, but I'm not necessarily really giving any of myself over. And You're just a watcher. I'm just watching and I'm singing and I'm, I'm just letting it wash over me. Yet at the same time, I'm aware that I can choose to step into those moments, to use use my whole self, my my heart and, and my mind to think about what I'm singing, to think about what's going on on stage, to look for the good in it, look for um, the beauty, look for the true things, you know, leaning into what we're called to do in Philippians 4.8. And when I do that, all of a sudden I'm active in worship in, in such a way it enables me to, I think, have more of an open heart to the things that might be maybe um, not as engaging to me just because of who I am and the way I'm made, but, but I can appreciate what's going on. And I'm less in evaluation mode, and I'm, I'm more open-hearted to give myself into uh, the moment that has been I think, curated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think that's really good. So I think that goes back to all these times you've been reading these psalms and there's that command, and you talked about this, sing to the Lord a new song, uh, verse 1, verse 5, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, uh, and then verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth in joyous song, 
and sing praises. There's a there's a switch we have to hit inside our head that makes us active participants. We're singing, we're worshiping, we're not just watching and evaluating. We're 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 putting that aside and we're just singing and we're humbling ourselves enough to participate even if it's not a song we love, we're humbling ourselves to participate in the worship. Yeah, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of times too, you know, if I'm if I'm being honest, there are times that I go to worship and I'm I'm not feeling like I really want to worship. There the days I'm maybe I'm not in the mood or so, something's going on in my life that I makes, think most times I come into a church service I'm not feeling like right, worshiping. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh and so I mean, that's why it's a good habit for us to go even if we're not necessarily feeling like it. But as I make that choice to to step into those moments, I find just like we talked about with the Tim Keller quote that's how God changes my heart and renews my faith and helps me step into the next day in a way that's relying on him, trusting on him, uh, remembering my identity in Jesus because I've, I've made that choice to sing and engage my heart in an active way, even if I wasn't necessarily feeling like it. But to that end, if, if I can take us in just a slightly um, different direction with that, that's why we do it together, right? Yeah. Because there are times that we might not necessarily be feeling like we can sing the songs or want to sing the songs. Um, but when we are in the same room with other believers, I've heard the say singing uh, each other forward, hmm. that we, we hear the voices of the church and we're brought into... Um, brought into a space of renewed faith because of the faith that's being expressed by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I like what Tish uh, Harrison Warren says to that end. She says, you know, when we confess the creeds and worship, we don't say, I believe in God the Father, uh, because some weeks I do, and some weeks I can't climb that high. Instead, we confess, we believe, because mm-hmm. belief isn't a feeling inside of us, but a reality outside of us into which we enter. And we find when we find our faith faltering, sometimes all we can do is fall on the faith of the saints. We believe together. That's really good. I'm, I'm, I'm part of a we. I don't have to do this by myself. And when I walk into the we, I'm not trying to come in contact with something inside of me. I'm trying to walk into something that's outside of me that exists, that's real. And the congregation embodies that, and I'm walking into that. That's right. And in some sense, I think that's why we do have worship leaders on the stage. Who um, it's the starting place of the we, yeah. right? And 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 our role is to be hospitable and to open our arms to our church and say, "Come join us. Come, let's celebrate with us. Come celebrate with us. Let's let's look to our great God. Let's see what He has done for us in Jesus, and let us remember it uh, and and celebrate and and even in times of grief, let's grieve together. Hmm, let's good. mourn together." Let's shoulder each other's burdens. That's what we're here to do. Hmm. This psalm ends like all these psalms you've been looking at, Psalm 96, Psalm 97, not here in Psalm 98. It's this idea that it's looking forward. I think it's I think it's one of these things where the future is presented as the past, like a lot of prophecy does in the Bible. And so it's looking at something as if it's past, it's already happened, or it's happening. But these are future events when the king comes and he brings salvation to the earth and all the earth and all the ends of the earth and all the peoples and the nations on earth, 
that this is a global scope of what God is doing when he's bringing his restored creation. And I just love the poetic picture here at the end of Psalm 98, verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes. And it says here, he comes and he's bringing his salvation. He's bringing his steadfast love. He's bringing his faithfulness. And this is something that all of creation rejoices in when this happens. The rivers clap their hands. Now, that's obviously a poetic truth. The hills sing for joy together. And this is that idea of what you were saying together. And all of creation together is going to rejoice. And the mo- the, the poetry here. The method here is through singing, through music, through song that is expressing its rejoicing in the salvation of God, the entire world. And I think it just sort of gets to that point that we're walking into something. We're not looking for something inside of us. We're walking into an external reality that all of creation is longing for and all of creation will rejoice in when Christ comes back to bring his salvation. I think that the way it ends here, though, is a little bit of a curveball, at least for me emotionally. It says, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness with, and the peoples with equity. And I, I think it's important for us to understand that part of salvation, part of the restoration and, and resurrection of the world is God removing evil. He'll wipe every tear from our eye. He'll, there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order has passed away mm-hmm. and new things have come. And mm-hmm. part of that is justice. Part of that is bringing judgment and removing evil. And of course, the trick is to remove evil without having to remove us. And this is why we have salvation in the King, salvation in Christ. But there is a sense even now where judgment, justice, uh, judging the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. In other words, there's no partiality that God truly sees and judges without partiality, uh, without selfishness, without selfish motives. God's salvation is his righteousness and his justice. And the last verse is, you know, not the verse that probably we would write if we were writing a psalm today, but it's important for us to realize that we want to be in that story, that, mm-hmm. that justice is part of that story. And uh, God removing evil from the earth is part of that story of salvation. Any thoughts on that when you think of, you know, I don't know, when we, we, when we sing... Uh, do we? It's controversial today to sing about justice. It's not controversial to sing about love and faithfulness and forgiveness, but it would be controversial to sing about justice. But I've noticed over the years that, you know, you have sometimes uh, the hills. What's, what's that song? Ju- Let justice roll down. Uh, justice will roll down. It's yeah. another Sandra McCracken song. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we sing that sometimes, and sometimes people go, oh, we're being political. Mm-hmm. The last thing I know you, I've known you for 21 years, the last, one of the last adjectives I would ever use for you is political. And yet you do sing of justice and these kinds of things. What's your heart behind that? What motivates you? Sure. Um, really, for, for me is, um, not to get in too long a story, but, you know, a few years ago, I was blessed to uh, come into a circle of relationships 
with uh, some some men and women uh, of color. And uh, these relationships had a profound impact on how um, I viewed worship and and also uh, opened my eyes to see things in Scripture that I wasn't paying attention to. And one of those things was the recognition that God really cares for the oppressed. He, he, he cares for uh, people who are marginalized. He, he cares for the underdog. Um, and there are calls uh, throughout Scripture where, where God promises um, that his justice, uh, as this is, and this is not just a song lyric, it is, it is um, a biblical phrase, justice will roll down. Um, and I believe in worship that one of the ways uh, that we are called to uh, embody that is to sing that as a part of our faith. Hmm. And, and as we sing it, my hope, and I, I believe this is true, that as we sing it, it kind of cultivates within us uh, a care for things that we might not care for otherwise. I think that's really good. And I think it forces us to do that because I think that we get caught up in our our own narratives, our own small story, and we try to make the big story fit into our small story. But I think what happens in worship and God-centered worship is it forces our smaller story into the big story, the bigger story, and part of that bigger story is to care about justice and care about that as part of this bigger, better story that we're being brought into and walking into in worship. Yeah, and I'm I'm caring about that story, and I'm caring about things that maybe don't resonate as much with my personal story, but resonate deeply with um, my brothers and sisters mm. in Christ. Mm. And so, in some sense, too, um, I, I think a lot about Revelation 7 mm. that talks about every tribe, nation, language, tongue um, being represented in our worship around the throne of God. Mm-hmm. And so as as I think about um, justice and I think about the um, cares and concerns of my brothers and sisters of color, how is Revelation 7 worship being represented uh, in the here and now mm. uh, on the stage uh, for the crossing or in the worship services, I should say, of the crossing? Making efforts toward that. Making efforts to be uh, inclusive mm. and... and um, Loving our brother and sister right. by worshiping in ways that matter to them. Worshiping in ways that matter to them, grieving mm. the things that that matter to our brothers and sisters, mourning, recognizing, remembering, mm. all those things I think are important. And that's one of the ways that we extend ourselves to one another as brothers and sisters. John Piper has a great quote from a sermon called Singing and Making Melody to the Lord. He says, music and singing are necessary to the Christian faith and worship for the simple reason that the realities of God and Christ, creation and salvation, heaven and hell are so great that when they are known truly and felt duly, they demand more than discussion and analysis and description. They demand poetry and song and music. Singing is the Christian's way of saying, God is so great that thinking will not suffice. There must be deep feeling, and talking will not suffice. There must be singing. Well, that's really good. That captures it. 
really does. Scott, thanks for being with me here today and talking about this psalm. I know there's a lot going on in your life, and you took time out of your schedule to be here, and it was really, I thought, a fun conversation, hopefully one that people benefit from. And let me just close us in prayer here. Uh, Father, I just thank you for your word that draws us into this bigger story. It doesn't keep us stuck in our small story. It draws us into the beauty and the goodness and the transcendence and the glory of your bigger story. And we do that by worshiping you, not just through meditation, not just through prayer, but by singing and by instrumentation and being part of this musical reality that will last forever because it's part of who you are and how you've made us in your image. Help us more and more to walk into this real, true story and let music and part of the singing in whatever church we go to, that we would be committed to that kind of singing in a congregation. Whether it's the kind of music we love or not is not the issue. It's the power of what your Holy Spirit does in that moment of worshiping and music that changes us a little bit even right then and there. And that's what these psalms are talking about. And I pray that you would help us to do that and that you would bless us and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in those moments and bring us more and more into your kingdom as you transform us more and more from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.